Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. I am so glad to have you guys uh, on Sex, Love, and Addiction today because today is a day unlike every other day where I have a really, really, really special guest. And I know that I tell you guys that I often have people that I admire and trust and respect, but this is someone who's just like out of my league. (laughs) He is a, a, a master of attachment theory, of relationship development, of intimacy work, and someone I admire greatly. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Stan Tatkin. Stan Katkin is a clinician, researcher, and developer of a psychobiological approach to couples therapy, or PACT. He has a clinical practice in Calabasas, California, and he's developed the PACT Institute for the purpose of training other psychotherapists to use this method in their clinical practice. In addition, Dr. Tatkin teaches and supervises family medicine and residents at Kaiser Permanente Woodland Hills. He's an assistant professor at UCLA, which is where I went to school, folks. Go blue. Yeah. And right. Thank you, sir. Uh, and he's doctor. He's on the board of directors of the Lifespan Learning Institute. Dr. Tatkin also serves as member on the Relationships First Council, a nonprofit organization founded by Harville Hendricks and Dr. Helen Hunt. And uh, let me remind you folks, we had Dr. Hendricks on just a few months ago, and it was really a thrill to work with him. And, and uh, Dr. Tatkin's in the same family. So welcome, Stan. Oh, thank you, Rob. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you. So I want to tell you guys, I, I did, I've asked Dr. Tatkin to join us before. He's been busy with, gosh, writing and school. And then we had fires here in Malibu and he got distracted by that because I think he almost lost his house in Calabasas. Sorry to hear about that. Um, but now we have Dr. Tatkin on and I'm particularly engaged because he just finished a book, which is going to be out in a few weeks or it may be out already where you are called We Do, Saying Yes to a Relationship. And you know, I've read your books, Dr. Tatkin, summer, graduate school level. I have to really put my thinking cap on, but, but this one really made me just feel the beauty of love and, and, and your desire to have people find real love. And so I want you to talk about that, if you will. Well, it is, you know, it is out, by the way, it's uh, de- December uh, 1st. Uh, this was something I had wanted to do for therapists because I love writing for people in my field. But, you know, the publisher really wanted this also to be for the public because it's a, it's a pre-commitment 
manual. And so I got to ask you this, if it's a pre-commitment manual, and I did read this book, at what are you saying that you really want people to, you think it'd be good for uh, any couple to seriously take a look at this and read through it as they're deciding if they want to be committed to each other or why? Because I'm interested in prevention. You know, before I started seeing couples, I was seeing mother-infant pairs because I wanted to prevent mental illness. I wanted to work with babies. And I feel the same way with couples, you know, after working in this field for so long and seeing things that can be avoidable, I really would, first of all, I love people come to premarital. I wish everybody would do it, but Mm -hmm. people don't. And people could save themselves a lot of service, a lot of pain if they just learned about the nuts and bolts of being in an intimate relationship and the uh, the realities of being a human primate, which has its own problems, and mm-hmm. to understand uh, from the get-go about agreements and about having a purpose and a vision for being together. So that's what really inspires the book. And it's, you know, uh, I feel it's the most comprehensive to date. And I really liked how kind you were in reading it. You know, I, I called your writing sweet. And what I meant by that is I see very little judgment in there. You know, you didn't say that the, the, that the couple has to be perfect, but you did talk about them having to agree on their, agree on and have not have secrets around their imperfections, that they understand that they're a work in progress as a couple. And I love that because it seems like so much of coupleship, especially in the early romance stage, is just about showing what you believe to be your best side and kind of hiding the things that you're afraid your partner won't like for as long as you can. Right. And I'm guessing you think that can be problematic. That is a problem. You know, there are certain rules that people have to understand about human relationships and human beings in general that are going to cause trouble everywhere. You know, people tend to think it's about me or it's about you, but this really is about the human condition. This is about everybody. So if people can start to learn about what it is, the good things and the not so good things about being a human being, the reason for being together and the reasons that we get together that are not going to last uh, in the long run. We have to understand that nature has a plan for us, but to mix up the gene pool to procreate. And that's about a four-year cycle. There is no plan for long-term relationships. That's a problem for modern culture. And we have to understand that we pick each other based on familiarity and recognition. You know, we don't pair bond with strangers. And so the likelihood we're going to be more alike than not is extremely high. Then there are other issues having to do with this whole business about what people consider being in love and we're together because we have the same interests and that's going to last a good hot minute. You know, we're, we're together because, uh, you know, uh, we, we, we seem like we're soulmates. The kind of love that, that comes out of what we call secure functioning, two people, separate people agreeing to interdepend Uh, because they have a mutual stake at surviving this life and thriving in this life, people who decide to do this as adults will begin to develop a kind of love that is long-lasting, that is hard to replace, because they understand that together they stand and they survive and thrive, um, or they fall. And this is based, uh, again, on we're together because we are protecting each other from the dangers in the environment, from predators, from the vicissitudes of life. We agree to do this, and we practice radical loyalty. We practice fealty. Dr. Tatkin, you know, I read your book, and I'm a bit of an intellect, right? So, you know, while I can be emotionally kind of a little nutty at times, as some of you guys know, um, and from my reading and my writing, but 
but I'm grateful to have enough of a brain often to figure my way out of problem situations. But I have to tell you that love does not make me want to think. <laughs> you know, everything I read about love and hear about love says that it's magical, that it should sort of happen between two people because they're the right people to be together. And because they developed this sort of West Side story, floated across a crowded room, everything dimmed down and the lights and we only saw each other and then the music swelled. And I mean, that's everything that all of us have ever been taught about love. And I have to say, it's all, as I listen to you, I'm thinking, well, it's all really in the emotional realm. It is all in the emotional realm, and it's in the animal realm. Mm. It is true. This is how we get jettisoned into a relationship. You know, in the beginning, we're on drugs, basically. We are superhumans. We, uh, it's as if nature is making us perfect specimens for each other, and we could do anything. Uh, that ship is going to sail fairly soon, and then we move into other stages of development in that mm -hmm. process. So, yes, love is gets us in. Lust maybe even gets us in. Mm -hmm. But what keeps us in is quite different. What keeps us in is a an attitude and a spirit of fairness, justice, and mutual sensitivity, of collaboration and cooperation, of a realization that we have to work together or we will run amok. We'll start to get into trouble. So one of the questions I have about that is, and I'm going to ask specifically for some of the women who I know are listening, and because I work with them and I hear from them online uh, in some of the online groups I do. And one of the things I hear most consistently is this, I've met so many men that were losers. I've met so many men who were drunks or abusive or weren't, you know, sociopath. They were just nuts. And I've gotten to a point, this is, these are many, many of the women that, that, that I do podcasts and webinars with, and they will call and, or, you know, come online and say, and I, I just feel like at 38, I don't want to date anyone anymore. I don't want to go out with anyone anymore. I'm done. I'd rather hang out with my women friends and just be alone than date one more loser. And I try to work with them to help them understand that it isn't them that's broken. It's their picker. And that they needed to make more time and maybe get more feedback in their discernment process about who is a good partner, who isn't. And I think this is part of what you're asking people to do at an early stage. And what you're asking of them in, in we do is a hard thing on some level because you're saying, look, even though that person's all moonbeams and starry eyes and everything's wonderful and you know, you're just the lust is great and you're really thinking about your future together and everything seems golden, you're saying, I want you to sit down and have a conversation about the hard stuff too. I think, Rob, people are so acclimated towards finding the right person instead of thinking about what kind of relationship is right. Can you say more about that? So I really, that's a great statement. More people are invested, it seems to you, in finding the perfect person or the right person, and I assume you mean for them. That's right. Than they are in, what was the rest of it? The relationship I want. What should the relationship be? And what should it be not only for me, but for person X? Um, because in order for us to do this, we'd have to agree on big ticket items. In other words, should the relationship come first above all else or something else? Should we be fully transparent with each other because we can? Should we be the go-to people? Should we have each other's backs? Should we be like being in the foxhole together uh, where we protect each other from each other and everyone else. But premarital counseling, in my experience, and I've had a little bit, is generally about, do you love each other? What does love mean to you? Do you how do you see finances? And how do you see having children? And that's it pretty much sort of follows a pretty, pretty rote process that mostly covers those issues and not a lot of what I hear you talking about. 
that it's true. Basically, these are, you know, uh, you, you fill out a form and it tells you how compatible you are in all these different areas. But unfortunately, that's not how relationships work. It's not on a, it's not on a piece of paper. This has to be done over time, face to face, and it has to be done in a sober way so that we're being truthful with each other in terms of what is our vision? What do we care about? What's the most important things? And are we on the same page? Do we agree? So many people overlook these things. And as I said, they go for who they think this person is and the kind of person that they want. And that's going to that's gonna be a problem. Have you been able to offer them and we do some concrete things like, uh, in other words, let's sit down together and, you know, on, on our fifth week of dating or our 10th week of dating, or before we make a decision to move in or whatever, we should do this. In other words, how do you, how do you help couples understand when and how to have these conversations, knowing as we do that so many people are just not going to get to a therapist. They may not have the means or the time. How, how can we encourage people and in what method to make the time to have these discussions before they commit? In Wired for Dating, my advice to people, uh, and still is, that you you vet another person by Sherlocking them, by paying very close attention to their movements, to their behavior, to their voice, to how they treat others, uh, and cut people a break because in the mm. beginning, everyone's auditioning and not at their best. But the real litmus test uh, is not just your picker, because we could say that everyone's picker isn't really good for long-term relationships, for sleeping together, uh, for having a baby, maybe it's fine. Mm -hmm. But for that, we need our social network to help vet each other. How do we look together? Uh, am, do I seem like myself when I'm with this person? Uh, does it seem like we fit into our communities together? Because this is a, an important reality. I love you, Dr. Stan Tatkin, because one of the first things I say to the men and women I work with is, if you feel that you might be uncomfortable introducing this person to people you love, big warning sign. I remember I had uh, this gal come in from New York, um, a, a very successful psychoanalyst, and she had told me that her husband, she found out for 30 years, had been cheating the whole mm -hmm. time. And I asked her, did you bring uh, him around your friends? And what did they think? She said, well, all my girlfriends loved him. They were dazzled by him. Mm. But my male friends uh, thought he was a, a, a player, a, a creep. <laughs> Mm. And I said, you know, don't you wish you would have listened to them too? Mm -hmm. Because you want to allow other people to sniff both of you and young people as well too, because what if kids don't like this person? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so that's the smart way to do it. That's the way, you know, we've been doing it uh, in the wild. And yet there are so many people who don't think they should or have to or want to. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this Sex, Love and Addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. So I have a good question, maybe just specific for this audience, which is where does sex fit into that? Because, 
You know, I've done a little bit of research in sexology, and my understanding is that women will tend to bond. They're releasing oxytocin while vaginally when they're being sexual. In other words, when a woman is having sex, she's already starting to bond with whoever she's being sexual with. It's unconscious and it is neurochemical, whereas a man may or may not release bonding hormones during sex, whether we're invested in the person or not. So was grandma right for women? Is it best to maybe wait on sex for a while before you, until you really get to know him better because you might start bonding in ways you can't get out of or, or can't see clearly? Well, here's a very interesting thing. Uh, if you want to get even more technical, women uh, also bond and express oxytocin in kissing. Men kiss for different reasons. Why do we kiss, Doctor? I, I got to know now. Why do we kiss, Doctor Dadkin? Women are uh, are picking up in the saliva in the way men kiss more cues as to whether the person is compatible with them, mm-hmm. and that includes the autoimmune system. We don't realize that much of our mate selection is performed uh, subcortically. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? I'm sorry, subcortically means? Below the level of consciousness um, in the area of recognition. And the recognition systems are, uh, are basically lightning fast and memory based. But they're also, they're also biologically based. For instance, uh, women, you know, there could be a histamine that's produced where the, these two partners are not compatible, but if she is not uh, having her menses, she may not pick up that problem. Uh, and, th- you know, th- this is how specific nature gets. When they're married, she may f- never feel that turned on to him because it was at a time when uh, it was a, a whole different chemical response. But men do produce oxytocin and vasopressin uh, when inside a woman or even when a woman is orgasming. Mm-hmm. Eye contact in the beginning produces a ton of oxytocin and vasopressin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When somebody catches our eyes, not when we try to catch theirs, it doesn't work the other way. You know, Dr. Tatkin, I could think you could be a dating expert. <laughs> <laughs> there, I guess there, you are. there are plenty of those. I, I am interested in keeping partners together and not just because I care about partners, but a couple is the smallest unit of a society. And therefore, social justice rules apply. How a couple operates determines how their offspring will operate and how people in their, in their orbit, neighbors, coworkers, other family members will operate. They're leaders. And so if they're good together, they become basically a lightning rod for others and they're highly attractive. So in the area of trying to influence uh, as many people as I can, I like working with the primary attachment system. And that's what a couple is. The hardest relationship on the planet, by the way, because it has the longest memory. The primary attachment couple relationship is the most like the earliest attachment relationship. And these two people are basically proxies for everybody that came before, which is why it is so hard, harder than work, harder than even raising children, and that's not easy. Can you explain that a little bit more simply? Yes. The human being, the human primate, in fact, all primates are driven fundamentally by something called attachment. And attachment basically means that we are interactional animals that rely on interaction for mental and physical health. You mean people. We rely on people, relationships, community, parabonding. This is a deep strength for us as humans especially within our species, because there are a lot of people who've given up on relationships yes. with people. 
and they uh, they uh, hope to find the same thing with other animals. And although there are similar experiences of intimacy with other animals, only two human brains can do something that is unique to two human beings. And nobody else can do those things that are extremely extraordinary. Like what can we do? What can we do? What is the thing? We can amplify states. In other words, you and I, uh, you and I together can experience more joy, ecstasy, and excitement than we could alone. We could also amplify pain as well. So uh, this is part of what attracts us to each other. Okay, so I I just need to challenge this a little bit colloquially. So when I walk at home, when I I come home and I'm in a bad mood and my husband's not home yet, and my dog is home and he's wagging his tail and he's looking at me and I'm thinking, oh, home, love, doggy, there's a connection there. Um, there is a relationship there, and I am getting some needs met there. But what's the difference between that and when my husband walks in the door? Because the dog cannot empathize, understand you, be an expert on you, minister to you. Even when I make sounds like, hmm, 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 my dog looks at me like, you are in pain, and he comes running over. <laughs> no, no, I understand. I'm, I'm over. I'm over. My dog is not that smart. I understand. Um, in a deep emotional way, well, we have to be known to be able, able to amplify our emotional states. And an animal cannot fully know you because, you know, as much as we love our animals, it's a narcissistic relationship. They, we give to them and they love us unconditionally, but they don't fully see us as we are. No, the animal does not have a theory of mind. Right. Discernment. He'll love, he'll love any owner. Right. Which makes the dog easier and yes. uh, and children babies easier mm-hmm. because they don't cause us so much trouble and conflict they're not differentiated they're not different than us they just love us or let us love them you're saying the problem is when people actually become themselves and they're not us yes then we have to figure out can we can I, how do we negotiate this thing with this person there's nothing more hard nothing harder than a, a, another person nothing on the planet People are far and away the most difficult, pain in the ass, creatures, creatures. and uh, yet we need them, so we can't just completely throw them out. And so while it's very interesting, because the reason we react to our animals uh, is because of the eyes and because of their proximity seeking, and many times because of their ability to maintain contact. Mm -hmm. They don't complain. They don't punish us. They're not saying, you know, don't tell me about your day. I want to relax. (laughs) That's right. I can talk to my dog all day about my day. He doesn't really have much to say, but he does stick and listen, stick around and listen. Exactly. Let, let, let me ask you this. I'm thinking about simple stuff that is in your book that we could break down in a way and say to a couple, you know, here are three things that before you make a serious commitment, you need to understand this about each other and really have spent time in depth on multiple occasions, hopefully with other people around, having discussions about these kinds of issues. What would be the three things that, and really come to some peace, some agreement, some acknowledgement that we you know, are in the same place, what would be those three or four things that you think couples really need to to be in sync with? You know, we, again, we used to say if they wanted around to have a child and one didn't, that was going to be a problem. If one had different views on how money was going to be spent, that was probably, we could predict those problems. But the problems you're talking about feel more discreet and feel like they can only be understood over time. So how would a younger couple who's eager to join together begin to ask the right questions to, to get the right answers faster than they've been together five years? What do we believe a relationship like this should be? What's the point 
What is that? Okay. What does that mean? Does that mean happy or sad? Does that mean, what should our relationship be? Should be a welcoming home or how do you, again, I'm trying to help people make use of what you're saying in a very concrete way. So the question about who are we together? What does a relationship mean to each of us? How does that play out? Like, what are you, what are people really saying to each other? Because those are, those are big statements. If I were courting you as a potential partner, I would want to know, do you believe in interdependency? Do you believe that our relationship would be the highest value that we would govern as if everything revolved around our relationship? So let me stop on that one. Govern our relationship as if everything revolved around it. So that would mean that if I was really angry at you and you were my partner, I would not necessarily run to five different people and get their opinion about how angry I am about you and how wrong you were. But I would go directly to you and, and talk to you about it and try to work it out before I pull in the rest of the world kind of thing. Exactly. We are the generals. We are the top of the food chain. We're the roof of the house. We are the royals. We consult with each other. We don't pull other people in. Mm. Uh, this is our ecosystem. And we are stewards of this, our relationship always remaining safe and secure. We are guarantors of that. This is part of our, one of our commandments. Oh, commandments for relationship development. Do you, do you have more than though, more than one? I'm thinking you might. Our relationship comes first. Our relationship comes first. Folks, please write these down. These are things that you want to talk to Dr. Tacton about when we do some live webinars. You're going to want to read in We Do. And, and by the way, I do want to say something about Dr. Tatkin. He's written so many wonderful books like Wired for Love, Understanding Your Partment, your, How Your Partner's Brain and Attachment Style Can Help You Diffuse Conflict and Build a Secure Relationship. He wrote Your Brain on Love. He wrote Love and War and Intimate Relationships with Dr. Marion Solomon. This is not his first uh, ride to the Love Pony Show. <laughs> <laughs> so let's add to this. Uh, we tell each other everything because life is easier that way. Um, we take threats off the table. We never threaten the relationship itself because that is very existentially earth. -shaking. So I'm going to leave you unless you buy me that car is not a good move. Uh, that would not be a good move. We have each other's backs. We're experts on each other. I'm a Rob whisperer. You're a Stan whisperer. I know exactly where you're vulnerable and I protect those vulnerabilities. Uh, you never want Lassie to be better than you at, in, a, in a pitch. So that comment I might make to my spouse about how he or she has gained a few pounds and maybe they need to get back to exercising and they're hyper aware of their weight and always worried about it, that probably isn't the most supportive thing to say, even though they really want to be aware of their weight and look at it. Good luck with that. <laughs> I know it hasn't gone well for me either. I have a question for you, Dr. Tatkin, that I ask therapy audiences, and, and this is maybe a trick question and I can we can delete it if it makes no sense to our podcast, but I want you to make sense out of this for me, okay? Sure. I go to an audience of, let's say, 300 therapists, and I talk to them about integrity in their relationships and being relationally intimate and not keeping secrets because, as you said, it's easier that way. And we grow faster and understand our partners better that way. And I present the following scenario. So I really want your thoughts on this. I say to this audience, you know, I'm on my, I've, I'm divorced. I have a couple of kids. I've met this lovely woman. She's divorced. She has a couple of kids. We've been dating for about a year. We like each other. We know each other. We think we're the best things since sliced bread. Our friends get along, our kids get along. And it seems like we should take the next step forward. 
And then I say to you, know, before I move into with you and we get more serious, I want to tell you that the truth is I've had many long-term relationships and none of them have been fully monogamous. And um, I love you dearly and I love our kids and everything's great. And um, but I, I need you to know that when I go to Vegas, I might get a lap dance. I'm not interested in a, any kind of relational experience, but I might occasionally want to have sex with a stranger when I'm traveling. And I tell you that while we're dating. And then I say to this audience, how many of you would now go ahead and move in with me and marry me? 99.9% .9 of the women in the audience said, no way would I ever marry you now. Then I go into the next conversation, which is, you know, okay, so I know about, we're dating and same situation and divorced and love each other. Everything's great and best things since sliced bread. And I know that I've never really been faithful with any woman because I occasionally do this and it's what I enjoy and it hasn't been a problem in previous relationships. And so I just don't tell you. And then seven years into relationship and another kid, you find out that I've been to, had a lap dance last year at a massage parlor. And then I say to the audience, which, which of these two choices would you rather have? The one who is honest, has integrity, is telling you his truth up front and open to negotiation at the beginning, or the one who is lying to you and keeping secrets because he wants to keep the relationship and is afraid that he won't get to do what he wants to do if he tells you. And the ladies then say, well, I don't want either of these guys. <laughs> and what I have to tell them is, um, and most women don't want to hear this, but this is most men I know. This is the majority of men in our culture. Not everyone is faithful and even though they say they are. And men in particular have a propensity for not being faithful and saying that they have been. So it's just as likely that you're going to meet guy number two as meet the guy who's going to be absolutely faithful to you. You get about a 50-50 shot. So can you explain to me this, this dissonance? Because I would think that a woman, and I'm not talking from about sex addiction or porn addiction or addictions. I'm just talking about your average person. I would think that a woman would want and this is a man talking, would want the guy who's going to be honest, have integrity, be real, even, and is risking all that he has to be honest with her, even though she may not like it. But the ladies tell me they, in some ways, they'd rather lie to them. Uh, human beings, first of all, by nature are not monogamous. That's a fantasy. Um, that's men and women, uh, both uh, equally. So it's a choice. And yes, it's a choice. Your example, you know, people who are adults, people who are mature, Secure functioning means doesn't mean that we are monogamous. It means that we agree on the big ticket items. Items. So if I am not monogamous and you are, and I can't argue why it's a good idea for you to be polyamorous or you to argue for me uh, in convincing way why I should be monogamous, we have a deal breaker. Both people can disagree. They just may not be together. But we don't have those discussions in marital therapy. We don't talk about those issues in premarital counseling. We never ask people about cheating or fidelity. We ask them about finances and kids. But cheating and fidelity breaks up a lot more relationships or just as many as do finances and kids. But we don't ask, do you think you're going to cheat? And if you did, would you tell her? So what is wrong with us as professionals that we are not trained to to encourage, and I mean the, the pastors as well, the clergy doing these premarital stuff, why aren't we encouraging the difficult issues to be talked about? I can tell you right away. It's not about love. It's not about attraction. It's not about money, time, mess, sex, or kids. It's about trust. It's about mm -hmm. reliability. Can I trust you with my life? Can you trust me with your life? That takes a big load off of us. You have to understand that we're under-resourced a lot as we go through the, the slings and arrows of life. The purpose of a relationship like this is that we decide we're going to make this easy. We're going to decide we're going to take uh, all of these resource-draining things off the table so we can be more creative, we can be better, we can succeed.
that can only be done if we have uh, we guarantee each other absolute safety and security and trust. You can rely on me. I will if I let you down. I'll I'll make up for that. I'll make it right. And I'll let you know that I let you down. I'll let you know. But this this is not negotiable. This is not a luxury. This is a necessity. We we live in a world where we think we have all the time to think about whether we're with our soulmate, while the rest of the world is busy dodging bullets and bombs. Um, those people know what their value is. We have to be able to depend on each other. If you, if I can't depend on you, you're fired. If I can't trust you, you're fired. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the only thing that matters. That is the only thing in the long run. If people don't have that, they don't have anything. So I'm, I want to stop there because I can't think of a better place to stop. But I, there is a question that I still have to ask you because it is the biggest challenge for the audience that I work with, which is about uh, the breaking of trust. Obviously, because most of the folks I with, with, work with are experiencing uh, trauma-based sexual issues, trauma-based intimacy issues. They know how to do lo- the love part, but they can't manage the relationship part and all of that. What I'm constantly hit with, you know, number one issue is my husband has been with this many people. My wife went back to her old boyfriend and didn't tell me. And the devastation of betrayal that that seems to cause spouses. And I understand that this is a form of trauma. I get it. You And it's an attachment trauma, especially for women. It's because they're looking at holistically. It's not just that I went off to Vegas and did this or that. It's what about the kids? What about the family? What about all of us? What about everything you committed to me? And just because I'm not looking at it that way doesn't mean it isn't true for you. I've done a lot of this work, but I want your feedback. What is the sort of first couple of steps for couples that have lost trust because of betrayal to begin to examine, can we even go forward and do, is there, and I guess I'm speaking for partners who've been betrayed here. How can I even hope that things will get better? How can I hope that there will be trust next time? I've been lied to so much. There've been so many secrets you know, I've been blamed for some of it. Now I understand everything that happened and I'm willing to potentially even go forward, except that I'm afraid I won't know when he or she's lying again. And I'm afraid that all of my efforts at restoring trust are just going to be broken and I won't even know about it. How do you begin to, I mean, we see those couples every day. If I lie to you, and here's uh, the big thing, a reveal of information that if previously known would have changed everything. You find out I'm a duck instead of a dog. Uh, I'm actually, I have another family somewhere else. Anything that was kept from you causes a brain injury. That's a, a PTSD in all its form. And there is no reason why you should ever, ever trust me again. I've given you evidence that I can't be trusted. And therefore, there has to be an architecture for getting this, getting the relationship back if it can be, but it has to be mediated. I don't, I've never seen two people do this effectively. Uh, well, I have, but I, I'm suspicious. The person who's been betrayed should have all the power. Yes. This is a pay-to-play system. You you break it, you fix it. It's expensive. Therefore, I don't know if I'm going to let you back in, but here's here are my terms. And if you don't like them, then sorry. But the other person who did the treason here has no power for the time being. Yes, they're one down. They've lost equality in the relationship and they have to earn back that equality with trustworthy behavior, meeting their commitments and often doing things that they don't feel comfortable about just because it makes their partner feel better. And they can never claim that they should be trusted again. That is wearing the scarlet letter. So what does that person get for that? They get to be a better person. 
that is the reward for having... Uh, and they get to stay in the relationship if that's possible. I think it's still better that you're a better person because mm. simply staying in the relationship, you don't learn anything necessarily from that. You know, you know, we want to learn from our mistakes. This is really important for the many of the betrayed partners that I work with. So I just want to reinforce the idea that it is never acceptable, I think, for someone who's betrayed you to say, "Are you, when are you going to get over it? Or can you just give me a break? Or I'm tired of looking at that unhappy face when I get home and it's been two months since the betrayal. That will just extend the, the time it will take for the partner to recover. But I can, And I can't tell you, Dr. Tatkin, sadly, how many partners think, well, it has been a couple of months and he is acting better. And I, maybe I am, maybe, maybe I'm contributing the problem. Maybe I need to be nicer and kinder and just let go and forgive because if I don't, you know, maybe he'll go back to that other person or she will. And this whole idea, and this is why I wrote pro-dependence, right? This whole idea that the partner is responsible for my bad actions or my actions that I chose to take outside the relationship, you're never responsible for that. That is always my responsibility, whether it's my choice to drink or use or whatever it is. And I think this idea that partners need to take some accountability for the loss is, is inaccurate. They need a lot of help with the repair, but they're not. And, and, and I'll just say this in this way, nothing you can ever do to me will make me drink. Nothing you will ever do to me or don't do for me will make me have an affair. These are choices I make on my own. Unfortunately, it seems very easy for partners to take responsibility and be blamed so that I can continue doing what I'm doing and get away with it. You know, we have to understand that the human nature is to be self-centered, uh, to get away with things if we can, to uh, be xenophobic. That's part of human nature. What about our morality? What about our moral compass? What about all that good stuff? That's higher complexity. That's higher development. That means that I have to believe in something as a principle, not a law, not a rule, believe in something that is not just good for me, but good for my partner as well. I adhere to the principle because it's, it is uh, a demonstration of my character. I'm harming myself when I break that, not just my partner. And so th these are, um, again, th this is not uh, lofty unicorn stuff. Right. These are truths of being human. I got to tell you, Rob, I have examples of street people who are crazy, people who have Asperger's, people with brain injury. They're secure functioning. They get it. They get their lives depend on each other. It's, mm. you know, uh, and they don't mess with that ever. And they don't, well, and they don't preach detachment. Uh, people lean into each other. They get it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you were, uh, you know, cop car partners and your lives depend on uh, staying together uh, when you're in danger and your partner goes out for coffee in the middle of that, you know, that is a, uh, th that is a, a fireable offense. Right. Right. People have to understand that there's something greater here than simply attraction, eroticism, interests, and so on. It's not about money, time, sex, or kids. It's about being able to travel through this life together, interdependent uh, on somebody who you trust and they trust you. We know this through the Grant study, the longest study of human behavior on the planet, still continuing today, the Harvard study. What leads to happiness, longevity, and good health? One thing and one thing only. We have at least one secure functioning relationship. One. If we don't have that, we'll die sooner, we'll be crazy, we'll get sick. If we are in a terrible relationship where we're uh, hurting each other, we'll die soon also. You wrote that in pro-dependency. Uh, you know, you and I are on the same page about this stuff. So I think people have to really start to 
uh, understand we don't live in a culture that explains this to us, that forces this kind of, of uh, uh, loyalty. Commitment. Commitment and loyalty. That the person that you, you know, there's something greater than you, and that's the relationship that you create, which has trust, respect, safety, security. All of that is something you both are stewards of. You either do that or you suffer the consequences, which is going to be unhappiness. One other thing, we have to understand that the human being is primed always for war. We're warlike creatures. We always look at what we don't have. We're looking for threats all the time. Always. That's part of how we survive as a species. And if we don't understand that, and if we don't play well uh, with each other, we're going to go to war. That's just the way it is. And people have to start to learn about you know, what it is to work together. A two-person psychological system, we move together, we operate on principles of fairness and justice, collaboration, cooperation. That's how we roll. That's how we get things done. That's how we are more than we would be if we were alone. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Stan Tatkin, such an amazing dude, and I'm so proud to have you as a colleague and a hopeful friend as we go along. Please take a look at his book, We Do, Saying Yes to a Relationship, and also um, take a look at his work because, or if you can, take one of his workshops. Dr. Tatkin, how can people find you? Um, the good thing about a podcast is that we don't have to say it 20 times, we say it once and it'll be here forever. So what are the best ways for people to reach out to your work, not just books, but if they want to do a workshop or or do some kind of therapy? And you're with your in the PACT program, how would that work? You can find me at the PACT, P A C T Institute.com. And if you're a therapist and you want to learn how to uh, work psychobiologically, we train therapists all over the world. And if you are wanting to come to one of our couples retreats, we have one coming up in March in Costa Rica. Oh. And, um, the retreats are wonderful. And so that's how how you can reach us. Thank you so much. I have a feeling this is part one and we will be doing more of this. And I just, uh, I really celebrate your work and appreciate you as a role model and a guide for me and my work for sure, even though you may not have known it. Thank you. Well, I love your book, Pro-Dependency. And I think, uh, you know, we're two of a kind in that sense. Uh, we'll talk to you folks really soon. Thank you for being here. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.